where in a classroom type setting they'll have a speaker come in and make a more formal presentation but the groups that I've encountered also make sure that there's a lot of time for question and answer in there which at least allows people the opportunity to share their viewpoints too so it's moved a little less from the round the literal round table to a more classroom like setting but in some ways that's been a good thing because it's due to the greater popularity of the study and discussion about the American Civil War. Do you know how, how many roundtables there are? Uh, there are hundreds. There are literally hundreds. There is, I have not found any central clearinghouse. There were some good websites out there that, com- that people would diligently compile lists on the web of those that they knew about. But as you know, maintaining a website is an arduous task and making mm-hmm. sure that the links are updated and not broken, and that they have the latest information. So from what I saw, there are hundreds uh, upwards of, uh, I would imagine, almost a thousand or more throughout the United States, and dozens, if not more, throughout the world. We, we had, uh, as a guest on the show not too long ago, uh, the uh, secretary for the U.K. Civil War Roundtable, and he gave us a very interesting picture of, of, of the activity that they uh, engage in there. And, and as you say, it's not just, uh, uh, not just the U.K., not even just the English-speaking world, but throughout the whole world you find these civil, American Civil War roundtables. Mm-hmm. Um, so if, uh, if I want to join uh, uh, the local Civil War roundtable, what should I do? Well, the great thing is... For someone who's interested in learning more about the Civil War, a Civil War Roundtable is a great way to do that. And it's simply a matter of my contention would be to check online for a group that's near you or to check out the Civil War News, which does publicize Roundtable. There's a classified section where Roundtables put in information about upcoming events that they have. In fact, it was in that way that I found out about the roundtable that I've been a part of since 1992, which is the Robert E. Lee Civil War Roundtable of Central New Jersey. Now, what I would say is go and show up at a meeting, introduce yourself to a couple people. You'll find in many, many cases they're a very, very welcoming group. There's no cost to walk in and check it out, and it gives you the opportunity to scope it out for a meeting or two to then decide if you want to become a more formal member by paying what I contend are very modest dues. But you will have then associated with some like-minded people and learned a little bit more about the Civil War. Where do these organizations usually meet? Any given place. You know, I just recently interviewed a gentleman from the Rhode Island Civil War Roundtable who went out to Kansas, and he met with both the Topeka and the Kansas City, Kansas, Civil War Roundtables. And he said it was really neat because, actually, those two roundtables have the same president. They share a woman named Deb Goodrich, who is the president of both of those roundtables. But he said, Matt, they have two very different cultures and feelings to them. The Topeka Roundtable met at a local historical society building. It was very informal. It was lecture, Q&A, meeting done. The Kansas City Civil War Roundtable was much more formal. It was held in more of a, I believe, a country club type of environment. 
the gentlemen wore jackets, and there was a Pledge of Allegiance before the start of the meeting, and a business portion, and so on. So roundtables meet just about wherever they can find an appropriate place at a you know reasonably reasonable expense, and they meet everywhere from firehouses to libraries to historical societies to more, if you will, upscale uh, and, ex- and expensive places, depending on what their budgets allow. In my own experience, um, and, and as I think about everywhere I've lived, there has been a Civil War roundtable. There's, uh, I think it's the Dorsey Pender roundtable is the one nearest uh, Greenville uh, within a few uh, a very short driving distance, and I'll actually be speaking there in October. Uh, now that I think about it, um, but they uh, some some uh, as you point out, meet in, in uh, uh, libraries or civic rooms, uh, others at restaurants or, or clubs. When I was the historian at the Lincoln Museum in Fort Wayne, Indiana, the local roundtable met at uh, at an old country buffet, uh, all you can eat. And never had fewer than you know fifty people showing up uh, because they had to eat dinner anyway, and there was no extra charge for the meeting. Uh, whereas I, as as a museum historian, I would often be invited to speak at other roundtables, and there were some uh, towns in Ohio that I will not shame by naming, where you drive two or three hours and get there, and there'd be three people in the meeting room at the public library. Um, I came to conclude that food was a big draw. Uh, I, does that seem to be one of the best practices? I would agree that that food is a, is a good draw, and free food is even a bigger draw. Uh, but uh, you know, as an example, at our Robert E. Lee Civil War Roundtable, we have had about 120 members each year, dues-paying members, dues of about $35 a year. We do not have food. We meet in the basement of a library, and we get about 75 to 100 people at any given meeting, which is an outstanding attendance for these yeah. things. That really was the direction is. that we chose to go. You're right, Jerry, though. There are roundtables that do roll in, in many cases, an optional dinner portion with that, where they'll say, mm-hmm. on top of the dues that you may pay, you have the option of coming an hour or two early and spending time with people that you know and like and have this common interest, and there's a flat fee for the pre-meeting dinner. And that's another way that I've seen another a number of roundtables promote some, you know, I think it promotes some camaraderie among the membership. It gives them an opportunity to get to know each other outside the more uh, perfunctory meetings themselves. One uh, small touch I've seen at a lot of meetings is uh, fundraising through a, a raffle of Civil War-related items. People bring in books and other things that they might have duplicates of and uh, that is something I've always enjoyed as a speaker, going to uh, see how roundtables do that. Is that something you find typical? It is very typical, Jerry. It's for a number of reasons roundtables do this. You'll find that many of them charge very modest dues. I've not seen any annual dues above $50 a year. And that's because roundtables are pretty thrifty with their dollars. They want to attract a good number of people. The thing with that is those dues allow them to get speakers of various renown. And so the more money they have in the Treasury, the more they can pay well-known speakers. We've seen the same thing. When we have an Ed Bars or someone come in who is exceptionally well-known and a fantastic speaker, 
we've had upwards of 120, 130 people for meetings that, when we're happy, we're to attract 75. For raffles and things like that, roundtables have used these for many years. They'll raffle books. We've done that. Other roundtables have done that. They have 50-50s. And that money, in many cases, can go back into the Treasury for the roundtable. Sometimes it helps pay the stipend for the speaker. But many cases I see that that money is then dedicated to battlefield preservation and the roundtable's commitments to help preserve as much land as they can. The, uh, in, in terms of paying speakers, do most uh, I, I've seen, again, a, a range of, of activities from paying a, an honorarium and paying expenses to uh, simply inviting, inviting you to dinner, uh, but, but no, no expenses or anything. Um, how, how do roundtables make a decision in that? How do they, uh, what, what's the pr- normal practice? It's funny. I spent one whole column a couple years ago uh, with a topic of hosting guest speakers, I've had the pleasure, as have you, of having been a little bit on the lecture circuit to speak to different roundtables. For myself, up in the uh, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Connecticut, New York region, and roundtables have different levels of, I'll say it, uh, sophistication and experience in dealing with speakers. And most of them, if not all of them, do offer some type of a stipend. At, at least to recognize the time and effort that the speakers have put in, and those that can afford it will offer some type of travel reimbursement for someone who is coming a bit of a distance to others who are able to actually put speakers up overnight if need be. And the best way to do it, and what I had done in, the, in that column, was to say to roundtables, make sure that you discuss these things ahead of time, that you give clear directions of how to get to the site, and that you discuss compensation ahead of time. In some cases, I know myself, I wound up speaking at a round table and uh, was treated to uh, a nice pizza dinner beforehand and nothing afterward. And I realized at that time that it was really incumbent on both me and the round table to discuss those things ahead of time. Um, yeah, especially if you've driven, uh, you know, with gas prices what they are, if you come a long way or if you fly somewhere, uh, it can be a problem if, if you haven't established that early. The key is to do that. That's exactly it, Jerry, is to work all those things out ahead of time. And other roundtables will do something that I find to be a nice touch at a very low expense on top of any monetary compensation, either for time or travel. Uh, the dinner is always a nice thing. It gives the speaker an opportunity to meet a few of the members, if not more than that, before the meeting. And the other thing is many roundtables have purchased small mementos, coffee mugs, bookmarks, T-shirts, things like that that they put the roundtable logo on. And I'll tell you, those keepsakes are some of the things that I'm proudest of. As an example, I have a coffee mug from the uh, Delaware Valley Civil War Roundtable outside of Philadelphia. And each morning when I go to get my coffee, I see that mug, and it reminds me of the, the good experience that I had going to visit those fine people. And that's another way that roundtables can show their appreciation for speakers. As you say it, I'm thinking of my, my Southern Indiana Civil War Roundtable T-shirt uh, that I 
occasionally wear uh, for playing soccer with the kids. Uh, with pride, I'm sure. And with pride, yes. It, and it reminds me of the time I spoke in Evansville, and uh, it was a very pleasant evening. The uh, uh, Let me ask you this. Thinking of, of your experiences both uh, as a, a roundtable member or as a speaker, um, what, what is the best, uh, let me ask you, what's the best and worst experiences you can remember uh, with Civil War roundtable meetings? The best experiences, I think, are those where the speaker not only knows what he or she is, is talking about, but is passionate and is energetic about it. Uh, I can recall times where I know in our roundtable, f- thankfully, fewer than more often uh, there was you're you're having a meeting you've eaten dinner you're now perhaps on a winter evening in a rather warm room in a library and the speaker perhaps is getting up there and reading word for word from a written document on a podium and i can assure you that not only did my head perhaps nod off in a case like that i wasn't the speaker that time but uh, it certainly made for a long evening, and uh, being uh, thoughtful of time also on the speaker's behalf is important. There are presentations that you know we remember for years afterward of people who did a fantastic job because of the passion and the authority in which they spoke. I remember years ago, I can even remember to this day, there was a Dr. Latimer who came to our Civil War Roundtable. Yeah. And Dr. Latimer was an expert on the Lincoln assassination. And almost a combination of, I mean, he is a doctor, a medical doctor, but almost like a lawyer articulating his case in a court, Latimer went through the pathology, if that's the right word, of the the bullet wound and what happened with Lincoln physically and what happened with him in his care for those several hours that they tried to keep him alive. And, Jerry, I'll tell you, that presentation had to be at least 10 years ago, and I vividly remember it today because it was such a powerful, unique, well-put-together presentation. Well, that, that's, you know, the power of this sort of thing, the, seeing the speaker in person, being able to challenge with questions and uh, see you know, what they really believe and get beneath the surface. That's what makes it worthwhile. Uh, we're going to take another short break. I'm going to ask you uh, about the Abraham Lincoln Roundtable movement, if you know anything about that, and we'll talk about other things when we return with Matt Borowick, columnist for the Civil War News on Civil War Talk Radio. Mm-hmm. 